Hello, I'm Somi Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of Fempeak. On this podcast, I speak to some of the most brilliant minds of our time to help us navigate emerging technologies leading to a socioeconomic singularity. Our guest on today's podcast is David Heinemer Hansen, a prominent Danish programmer and co-founder of Basecamp, a fantastic platform for workplace scheduling and productivity. David co-authored a book about remote working over a decade before we all started getting on Zoom. I discovered David on the Bankless podcast where he discussed why he was wrong about crypto and decided that actually crypto is really needed for our time. I really enjoyed this interview and I hope you do too. So first of all, thank you uh, for accepting to do this interview. Um, you know, I was really pleased uh, when the team said that you accepted because uh, I thought when I listened to your interview on uh, Bankless, I was like, oh my God, there's like so many levels that I could really think about talking to you. First of all, I, I think I mentioned this to you via email that uh, I used to work in a TV company and we used your... Um, we used Basecamp. Uh, yeah, oh, Basecamp. Yeah, your program. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We used Basecamp for a very long time. And... Um, now that I run my own business, uh, we are currently using uh, Monday.com, and I keep thinking maybe we should go back to Basecamp because. <laughs> oh, absolutely, you should. Absolutely, you should. <laughs> you know, there are so many things that uh, that I really liked about it, and especially for kind of production. So, do you still run Basecamp? Yes, absolutely. It's been uh, close to twenty years now. We, yeah, I mean. Wow. 18, I suppose. We launched in 2004, one of the original SaaS companies before things were even called SaaS yeah. and been improving it ever since. And, uh, and uh, now on version three and, and just coming up on version four, we've really been in high gear to just improve it. So if you haven't used it for a while, um, yeah. the software has taken a huge leap forward. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good few, like maybe it's around seven, eight years since I used it. So, oh, wow. It, you so like much better, it, I think. Really. Uh, yes, a, a huge step forward. Oh, that's amazing. We've actually got a very professional audience of about 60,000 people in our mailing list. You know, I've got a large following on LinkedIn, and I haven't heard people talking about Basecamp recently. So, I think we really should bring it to them and, like, absolutely. You know, maybe maybe somebody from your team may like to come in and do a demo and, and explain, you know, how. That would be great. Yes. Amazing. So, okay. So Basecamp's still going on. And then it was quite a bit of a surprise finding you on Bankless because you were suddenly talking about crypto. So the first thing I want to know is, did you buy Bitcoin since then or not? <laughs> I haven't actually yet. And you know what? The reason was I signed up for uh, Coinbase. And I thought like, well, this is the way to get um, get started here. And then I was like, you know what? The thing that attracted me to Bitcoin here on, on the second go after all the Canadian stuff was the distributed part. And if I just go through the exchanges and so on, I'm not really, I need to go a step beyond that for me to tickle the things that uh, makes it interesting for me about Bitcoin, that it isn't just about sort of crypto in general. It's quite specific, my turnaround, that um, having the distributed form of, um, as, as someone would say, computer money um, that we can send back and forth in ways that the government can't stop us from doing, that's really the part, it's the freedom part that, that tickles me. And I know there's a million reasons why someone can be interested in crypto. And some of those reasons I don't have that much flattery for, right? The whole um, sort of hype investment boom, make a lot of money. That's that's not the thing that tickles me. Um, what tickles me is this idea that um, we have the freedom to transact yeah. and that Bitcoin in particular is the best um, most promising option, even if it's not perfect and we're not there all the way and particularly not there all the way when it comes to transacting without the exchanges. But there's enough there where I can imagine this, this could work. And there are not any other good competing ideas right now. It's not like Bitcoin is just one out of, well, there's crypto and then there's five other things that could give us this freedom to transact without uh, uh, governments being able to just... Uh, stop everything right like no crypto is pretty much the main answer in town right now maybe someone will come up with something better but as it is right now and what's been developed and what's been proven um over the past 10 years or, or so um 
crypto is it. So whether you have reservations as I do, and I have many about crypto in general and all sorts of specific things and, and the, um, uh, the whole thing of um, a proof of work and what that does with the use of energy and so forth. There's, there's a lot of discussions that you can have, um, but I've flipped on, do you know what? Now it's time to, to talk more about, can we, can we fix that, right? Because there's something here. And I think that's that's the the main thing where when I started talking about Bitcoin in whatever 2012 13 and and to fair to say I had more than a little bit of skepticism I had a lot of skepticism and I thought actually that um, it was just going to fizzle and and sometimes you have to look at the fact that you you had a take you had an opinion you had a prediction and it didn't pan out. And the world went somewhere else. And then you got to look at the world and you got to update your worldview. I think a lot of people, they fall in love with one opinion they had that one time. And then they see their whole ego being invested into that position. And then they are unable to update their worldview when the world changes or when the world reveals new things. Um, and I try very hard, not just on the topic of Bitcoin, but on the topic of everything to have this open mind that like, you know what, I could be wrong. I have strong opinions about a lot of different topics and some of them I've held for 20 years and some of them I've held for five years. And then I flipped and I go like, you know what? I've seen new evidence. Mm -hmm. I've seen new things here. And that requires me if I want to be intellectually sound and flexible to, to just accept that I'm wrong. And I think that this is one of those things that's become harder and harder to, uh, sort of ironic, if not tragic effect in the modern age of social media is that everyone feels like they have their ego invested into every damn position they take. Because yeah. if they switch, then they're going to get mauled by the side they used to be on. And the side that they're trying to approach might not be very friendly. That was one of the things I really was quite surprised about with the Bitcoin and crypto community was the grace with which it accepts quote unquote converts. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ideological communities around today who are very stringent in accepting converts. In fact, they aren't very nice at all. Someone says like, oh, actually I, I believe things about, I don't know, diversity now. And you just get a torrent of like, well, you used to be an awful person because you didn't believe this since the beginning of time. And that has an effect on people being less interested or willing to come around to certain viewpoints. But what I found with the crypto and the Bitcoin community was that they were like, hey, it's great you're here. So yeah. happy that like you came to some of these realizations, even if you still hold positions that like, well, it's not a universal um, sort of endorsement of the whole concept. That's fine. There's This is a big tent. And we, one of the things that, that surprised me, for example, was that there's a sort of Bitcoin maximalists who mm -hmm. might not actually have that flattering things to say about the rest of the crypto universe. And then there's this sort of the broader crypto people who are interested in everything from NFTs to, to, to Bitcoin, to Ethereum, to, to all these other coins. Um, but a whole community as such that is remarkably open to divergent opinions. And I think that that's a rare attribute for communities to have these days and that stood out to me as well that just like do you know what that's even more evidence to me that there's something here when there's this broad of a community and that many people who are able to tolerate not just dissent but different opinions and yet still make progress on some sense of a shared vision of the future of money mm -hmm. that's appealing even if i'm i'm not sold on all the particulars i'm, yeah. I'm sold on learning more yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the thing about uh, crypto is that we all need the adoption, right? So I guess that's part of the reason. I'm sure that part of it is that crypto people are just good people, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but part of it is that we all need the adoption. And uh, for this thing to take off, we need the masses, we need people to get on board, we need people to change their opinions. Um, for example, I've changed my mind about NFTs. I was like, not very much into NFTs. And now I'm so bullish on NFTs because I started to really understand it. And then I started to understand, you know, how the ecosystem works. And when you understand how the ecosystem works and you get in early uh, before the mint, you know, become part of the community from, from the start and support that community. It's really very similar to just buying something on Kickstarter. That's how I think of NFTs. It's like, you know, you are buying 
that NFT as like a Kickstarter campaign. And that's like your token that is help, you know, that shows that you've helped that community. I remember you probably know about this company called Tile, you know, that they uh, help you find your keys. The, the device. Yes. So I bought a tile uh, on Kickstarter many years ago when they were first starting. I still use it. Every year I buy a new t- a tile, you know, as they bring in new ones. And, and and I really love it, you know, and I've been supporting them since then, um, became a, a customer. Um, so it's really for me, NFTs, that's really the essence of them. It's like somebody's trying to build a community around a, a concept and uh, you get in and you support it and you stay with it. And then you can always opt out if you don't want to continue. You can just go to OpenSea and sell that, you know. And, and if the community has built a strong base by then, then somebody else will buy that and it's okay, you know, you get out. So that's how I, I think of NFTs now. And I think that they are very, very interesting phenomenon. Not that I didn't understand, but maybe I didn't understand the depth that I do now. But talking about ego, you see, like even now when I was saying not that I didn't understand, that was partly like, you know, my ego thing. Hmm, do I want to say that I didn't understand? <laughs> you know, so, yes. so, so what made you so humble? You know, you've been so successful. What made you so humble that makes you think that, you know what, like, it's okay to say, I didn't understand something, now I do. I mean, I would love to embrace that value of humbleness, I think, as a, as a strong human value, it's a good one. I, I don't know if that's actually true for me, that I am humble. Um, what I am is, I'm curious. I am very willing to give up on past misconceptions if I can get closer to a deeper understanding of the world. That curiosity really is what drives me in a lot of different domains, whether it's business or technology or culture or politics or whatever. I wanna understand how the world works. And as you go through that process, you develop these mental models. Oh, I think the world works like this because this anecdote or this thing I've read, and then you get more anecdotes or you read new things or events happen in the world that invalidate your previous models. And then you're faced with the choice. You can either cling on to that model and just tack on like, well, that's an exception that's not valid. Ergo, my model is still good. This is what most people do. They defend the mental models that they have until the last straw. Um, Or you can go, do you know what? This new piece of data invalidates my model. I need a better model. Mm -hmm. And I actually like that. A a lot of people have this reaction when their old models are invalidated and they feel this sense of ego threat. Um, that like uh, it's very difficult to like the thing I used to believe last week is no longer true. How do I square that uh, inside my head? It hurts. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, um, for me, it's a pleasurable experience. I, I love being wrong to the extent that it allows me to update my mental, mental models to be more accurate. Mm-hmm. Because I look at this and like, I've been on this uh, earth here for what, 42 years. I've been in the business of, of technology for what, 20, 25 years. Um, if I was still stuck with the mental models that I had in 99, where's the growth? Why am I still here? What's the point of even being alive if I'm not learning something new, if I'm not updating my view of the, of the world? So I think like, do you know what? A big part of my satisfaction of being a sentient being is a, a, a system that can update itself. And, and I look at like, do you know what? If I'm still going to be involved with technology and so on for the next 20 years, I hope I'm going to be wrong about more things. I hope I'm going to have an opportunity to update my mental software and my mental models about more things because that is growth. Yes. And that is one of the things I am quite addicted to. I am addicted to intellectual growth and understanding things better and refining my models. Um, So I think sometimes that appears as humility when you publicly admit to the fact that you were, you had some broken models. Yeah. but, but I'm not sure it's quite that altruistic. I'm simply addicted to having better models and, and updating them as I, as I go. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Actually, I really think curiosity is such an important value. And people are often surprised when they see that as one of our values. So the other ones, the other ones one is speed. So speed, curiosity, and transparency. These are my three values. When I hire people, when I want to work with people, these are the things that I'm looking for because um, the world is moving so fast. Uh, I want to work with people who can cope with the speed of technological growth. You know, it's always so 
fascinating to me when I talk to people about, you know, Web3, crypto, or and before that, you know, I was working very much on digital transformation for many years and, you know, giving these talks, made a documentary, which won several international awards and interviewed people like Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, and, and I, I made this documentary to make a lot of companies aware of how fast the world was moving and, and how they needed to um, get curious about um, how to adapt. And it's so fascinating when people dismiss it. So fascinating. So um, I think curiosity is a very important value that we need to instill in young people, but also in older people too. But I'm not sure how we can do that. Like, do you think this is, this is something that is inherent that you are born with or is it something that you can actually, you know, develop? Well, I think there probably is a genetic component to it. I think one of the traits that people look at is openness, I think is what they call in psychological terms, so that people can have higher or lower levels of openness that often do correlate to curiosity. But then beyond that, we can all develop our curiosity. And I think one of the tragedies of the modern internet is that it seems like we're hell-bent on suppressing it. And we suppress it in a large uh, way through the ideological eco chambers and reinforcements of social media. That social media has become conformity engines that um, really serves to make sure you stay within the ideological boundaries of whatever team or tribe that you've signed up to be a part of, which makes it so much harder to be curious. When you live within a sort of stringent ideological box that has been outlined for you in advance. Um, and there are severe repercussions if you venture outside of that box. Yeah, that naturally suppresses curiosity. And that was one of the things as I just talked about that I was so impressed with the crypto and Bitcoin community that that was not that reaction at all. I, not to say that there aren't people within those communities who might have ideological bends that they're interested in enforcing and so forth. But as a whole, the experience was very almost out of the times. If you look at so many other political topics that are stringently enforced, where anyone who doesn't sign up for the tenets of whatever ideology is denounced as basically heretics, and then you discover this almost like time pocket. Hey, this is what the internet used to feel like. And these, this is perhaps the most endearing compliment I can give the crypto community is that so much of it feels like the internet did in the 90s. So much experimentation, so much willingness to chase half-baked ideas that might turn out to be wrong, but might also turn out to be the ones that totally changed the world. And the thing with most of these ideas that change the world is they look ridiculous the first time you see them, right? That's why they haven't already been put into practice. That's why they haven't been put into effect. I think um, it was Paul Graham from Y Combinator who often talks about the fact that the most promising or successful ideas that they funded were the ideas that seemed the dumbest on the surface of it. And the, the reason is that you almost need that veneer of if not stupidity, then in sort of incredulity that this is weird, this is awkward, because otherwise it would already have been captured. It would already have been discovered. It would already have been commercialized. So I try to keep that as a sense of humility. I look at something like NFTs, for example, where I think you're perhaps further along on the journey of acceptance than I am, where I go like, you know, for all these technical reasons, some of this stuff just looks not sound to me. And then I go like, you know what? That was, I also used to think about that, uh, about all sorts of things. I remember getting my first um, 3G phone in Denmark in the early 2000s. And one of the things they were saying was it had video calling. And I was like, that's stupid. Why would you want to see someone when you're talking to them on the phone? Because I'd grown up with like phones that just had a cord and you talk like, why do you need to see someone when you talk to them? And here we are sitting on essentially a video call. I do video calls all the time. Um, it's a huge advancement for communication that we're doing. And I remember, do you know what? I used to think the video calls were stupid. I used to think the video calls wouldn't go anywhere. And I try to take those markers of me being wrong about something to remind me that when I'm skeptical about a new idea or something else, like, you know what? Maybe your skepticism is warranted. I've also felt like there's been plenty of times where I've been skeptical about something and then, yeah, it didn't work. But 
there's also the times where it, where it did, right? So having the humility in that regard of remembering when you were wrong helps cultivate the curiosity that like, do you know what? That take, that instinct that I have the first glance at something and I go like, I have this reaction. That reaction is based on fairly shallow analysis um, and it may be wrong. And in fact, if you approach it as though that your first takes on anything are liable to be wrong, I think you're, you're better suited to change your mind. And that is, um, is something we should work stringently on is to lower the price for changing your mind. And again, this is where I'm so down on social media these days, because it's such a conformity engine that raises the price of changing your mind to stratospheric levels. If yeah. you've gone out and say like, oh, I believe this thing, now I'm part of this tribe, suddenly you change your mind or you even dare question it, and now you're ostracized. Not a lot of people who are interested in being ostracized. Not yeah. a lot of people who are interested in being on the torrent of whatever that comes from that, right? Which is quite similar to this idea of historical heresism, right? Mm -hmm. If you question the Catholic church in the 14th century, do you know what? There's not a lot of curiosity to figure out like how the universe worked back then, because you knew you started asking the wrong questions. Not only were you going to get ostracized, you were probably going to get broken on the wheel. Mm -hmm. So that was the dark ages for that reason. And I think to some extent, in some quarters, we have entered a new dark ages when it comes to curiosity. And it's coming out of this internet that's simultaneously giving us all this creativity and curiosity and so on. And it's just, it's a real mind in some ways that the internet is both this intense eco chamber of ideological conformance while at the same time also being the medium to bust that wide open. Um, so I vacillate back and forth these days of whether I think the internet is the worst idea mankind ever had and the best idea that we ever had. Look, um, and it's probably both, right? The thing is technology doesn't have a mind of its own, right? Like technology is a mirror to what we really are. Um, so it's kind of amplifying, you know, what we already are. You know, I grew up in Iran. I was born and brought up in Iran. I left Iran when I was 23. I came here to the UK. I studied um, political science, political philosophy and science and technology. And my mom told me, I regret the day that you learned English because she said that that changed me. You know, I, I started teaching myself English since I was very young. Um, nobody around me spoke English. Um, I taught myself I started reading English books, got into philosophy, uh, fell in love with Nietzsche. I actually then went on to do my uh, master's degree on uh, Nietzsche and Kant's philosophy of science and how it impacted their moral philosophy. And then that's what got me into, you know, my interest in technology. Um, but that changed me. And now I don't have a good relationship with my parents and um you know, my family back home. So I, I live in the UK now for the past 17 years and I don't have um, any, any other family here. Learning English was a tool to bring out what was already inside me. You know, it gave me the language. It gave me the ability to explore the world. That's how I think of technology and, and digital technologies, you know. I say always that digital is a language. It enables you to express a part of your humanity and who you really are. It's not the thing that makes you do stuff. It's the thing that shows who you really are. And that's what I think about the internet. I think the internet is, is showing us who we really are. And that what we really are is constantly evolving and we are constantly learning. And it's a dynamic system. It's a live system. It's a live organism. And from time to time, there are individuals that come in, you know, you can call them leaders that you can call them, you know, catalysts that come in and they really make a change. Like Elon, I'm so inspired by Elon as a business person and as an individual. I just think he's uh, challenging all the norms, everything. He's a bit of a wild card. <laughs> you know, like he, you don't know what you get. Sometimes, you know, you wake up in the morning and he's tweeted and like it crashed the whole market of something. You know, but, but that's, even that is fascinating, you know. And then 
there are maybe not to the degree of Elon, but there are other people like us, you know, that we make an impact on the people around us, right? Like I get so many of our members on FemPeak that send me emails about how their life is changing just by being a member and, and learning the things that they're learning. And I'm sure you get that a lot for, from people who use your products that you know, read your original book that you wrote, you know, which was like so ahead of its time. So these are the things that constantly happen. So technology is a tool. It's a series of tools and techniques that enhance our abilities. But I think now the challenge is how can we create more catalysts for good? You know, and how do we define good? You know, because now we are going into this era of the metaverse. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Because if you were somebody who thought video calling was stupid, <laughs> what are you gonna what do you think about the metaverse that we are gonna be living? so much of our lives in the metaverse. So I so would love to hear your thoughts on that. And how do we redefine our ethics and our um, you know, values as we go into this new era? You know, we are going into uncharted territories. We're going into a place where we don't have any previous paradigm for. Yeah, I mean, I think if we start with the big question of how do we define good, just to keep it simple here, <laughs> is that we are in in some ways in a historic wave of upheaval. Now, what gives me some confidence or, or comfort actually, is that it's not the first time in history that suddenly we can't seem to agree on like what's good and that there is such a clash of culture and clash of a definition of what's good. I've been reading um, a bunch of things about the, the 60s in particular and the last time we had this huge um, clash particularly again between students and establishment and everything seemed to be up for grabs um, in terms of the definition of good and that's been quite comforting because there's so many echoes so on the one hand like the world moves incredibly fast but it also moves in circles in many ways and in many themes and this definition of good or not good has really come under assault from the same postmodernist thinking that in the late 60s were attacking everything too and got out of hand in, in a lot of ways. And then suddenly through the 80s and the 90s kind of went back into its shell and now we're, we're roaring it back forward again. So I think that that uh, comfort that comes there is that like at a time of sort of extreme upheaval, extreme dis divisiveness, you think like, you know what? There were other times in history that had that and it didn't last forever because that's one of the, kind of perhaps depressing things you, you're when you're in the midst of some of that you're like is this the new reality is this the, is the next 20 years going to feel like this then that's thoroughly depressing and it usually doesn't go like that and i think there are already inklings of that that perhaps we've seen peak of some of these ideologies that are just tearing things apart and they're going to come back to earth and there's going to be a reaction by a broad um, sentiment of society, you're like, actually, do you know what? We indulged this bullshit for long enough. We're gonna come back to, to somewhere else and hopefully we're gonna move forward and we're gonna have learned something, but we're not gonna just continue down this path. So that's sort of abstract. But I think when it comes to the metaverse in comparison to video uh, calling, I'm, I'm perhaps more sympathetic there because I feel like I've lived in the metaverse for the past 25 years. I've been uh, huge into video games since the start of internet video games. Um, I played a, a bunch of uh, team collaboration video games over the internet as soon as modems basically got good enough to do that. Um, so I feel like I've already lived a version of that reality. Um, and it's pretty great. I played the metaverse in terms of Fortnite with my kids and half of the past several years, and I totally get it. And if anything, I'd actually say connecting this to the NFT uh, discussion, um, playing Fortnite with my kids is perhaps the strongest argument that I have on my side for why NFTs have value because they don't care about toys really in the way that I used to do, like physical toys. They care about skins. They care about new, like they care about digital assets. Um, and I think of like the amount of uh, money we put into Fortnite skins, for example, like, you know what, to some extent, it would be nice if there was a um, marketplace there that they could sell the skins that they no longer want to use. Now, do we technically need NFTs for that in the way that they are conceived as the blockchain, the main thing that enables it? I'm not 
totally sure, but NFTs, at least as a concept that you have digital assets that can be bought and sold, that seems totally legit and right. And I kind of wish we had it already. And I mean, we sort of do, right? Like there's been marketplaces in video game assets for a long time and um, people mining these things and so forth, but it hasn't had the structure of it and it hasn't had the respect of it. Um, and then the other thing is, um, I remember watching The Lawnmower Man in like 95, the original virtual reality movie that showed essentially the metaverse and you plugging in and thinking, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then also thinking like, this is going to be reality in five years. I'm going to check and then it out, Lawnmower Man. Yes, The Lawnmower Man, which is, I think, sort of the... It was a terrible movie, actually. But a lot of terrible movies are, are very pivotal in terms of the vision that they present and the vision that the lawnmower man presented in terms of what virtual reality could be and really showing it off and sparking um, a lot of brains to think about it in, in a new way was really influential and certainly was for me. And I thought, you know what, this is a reality. We're going to live in five years. They're going to get real, uh, virtual reality good enough in like 2000 virtual reality totally crashed, right? The technology just wasn't good enough yet. And we're only now, like literally more than 20 years later, finally about to kind of almost be there. I have one of those uh, Oculus Facebook VR systems. And first of all, the first time I put that on, I went like, okay, I can totally see this as the future. This is one of those things where sometimes you look at the, or sometimes I've looked at the thing, I look at video calling and I go like, this is dumb. And then there are other times you see something like, for me at least, seeing virtual reality in a proper set that doesn't have cables on, just go like, this is totally the future. All video games are going to be there. Uh, we're going to live a large part of our lives like this because it's simply just more interesting. And then putting that virtual reality um, headset onto my kids from nine years old to six year old to a two year old. Like my two year old loves the virtual reality uh, hookup and you just go like, yeah, this is, this is one of those things where like, we're just not, it's just not distributed enough. Um, like the future is already here. So I'm hugely bullish on the metaverse. And uh, in that regard, I try to temper my knee-jerk reaction that like, it sounds stupid that we'd all meet there for work. But again, I also thought video calls were stupid. And this is now the main, or one of the main ways we communicate for work, right? So I often have this where you you, you have aspects of it and I go like, I was early with, um, with, um, 3G phones, and I saw a lot of promise in it, and I missed part of it, right? Like, that's the video call thing. Like, I, I just didn't understand it. So for the metaverse, for example, when I see sort of this vision presented that this is where we're going to work now, right? Like, we're going to be these avatars, and we're going to have meetings in it. I have this reaction, go like, that, that seems stupid. And then I try to temper it with, yeah, remember, remember video calls, you thought that was stupid. Um, so I'm pretty excited about the metaverse is does that mean that the vision that's currently being presented by, for example, Meta and or Facebook is the one that's going to pan out? I'm, I'm a whole lot less sure about that. Um, but it does really have something not. real. I really doing. hope not. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. You hope it, it becomes more or distributed. You hope it becomes more protocol based, not single platform company owning everything. You hope that some of these ideals actually that we have in crypto in web three um, are the ones that infuse the metaverse to a degree that we do own our digital assets in a different way we can trade. I mean, it, they, these are protocols. They're not just owned by corporations. Um, they have more of that original renegade internet spirit that we've lost so much of. And this is, again, I sometimes roll my eyes of the web two critiques. Um, but then I also go like, you know what? It's good. It's good we get some of that cultural critique that um, the internet that I started working with in, in 95, it's not the internet we're using now. And I, I wish it was more like, so sometimes when people say, oh, Web3, I just go like, do you know what? I just like Web1. Could we just get Web1 back? And my most uh, sort of uh, flattering perception is Web3 is basically just Web1 updated for, uh, for a newer era. Um, and then, then I become more positive to the whole sentiment. Yeah, I, I actually buy into that. I, I agree with that. So remind me of the book that you and your co-founder, I think you wrote together, right? So we've written a, a few, but the big seller was Rework in 2010. And then yeah, the one where we were really early was Remote in 2013. Remote, yes. That's, yes. That. So you were talking about remote working like 20 years ago? <laughs> Basically. I mean, this is that's a great example of like the future is already here. It's just not been widely distributed. When we started working together, Jason and I, in 2001, I was in Copenhagen, Denmark. He was in Chicago, Illinois. We were a remote company. 
like literally more than 20 years ago. And by the time we had been a remote company for over 10 years, um, when we published that book in 2013, I thought everyone knew that remote work was obviously the future and it was about to hit any moment now. I thought we were late with the book. This is one of those um, cognitive biases you sometimes get when you've been living in the future for a long time. You think that like, well, everyone is of course just gonna get it automatically because this is just the, the, the arc of history is in this regard. So I thought like everyone is gonna get that remote work is just makes total damn sense. Um, and we're late with this book. It turns out it was the opposite. We were about seven years early with that yeah. book, right? Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic hits and suddenly like you have this break in the matrix where everyone is brought up to the same version. They're all brought up to the future in like one go. Um, and everything we talked about in that book remote from now almost 10 years ago, there were all the things that people were suddenly facing as novel challenges. And I thought like, partly that was sort of just interesting and people were like, oh, how do we even do this thing? Um, and then they tried to replicate the office, like, oh, let's just book virtual meetings, video meetings all day long. Like, that's how we're gonna do it. And we'd be like, no, that, that's not the future of remote that's actually there um, amongst people who've been living there for a while. So it was a really interesting experience to see sort of the rest of the world catch up to the future you've already been living for a decade plus. And I, I can imagine that there's quite a few people in the crypto space who feel like that. We're like, yeah, I was here since 2012. And like, uh, it's nice of you all to join now, 10 years later, but that's just the nature of fundamental changes, right? Like society just does not change from one day to the next in these fundamental questions. If you are early, you have to be willing to repeat yourself for a decade or more um, for the rest of the world to finally pay attention. No, yeah, totally, absolutely. So what's your prediction now? What do you see for the next five to 10 years? So I see that um, these trends we've been talking about, both metaverse, virtual reality, crypto to a large extent, um, the best way to predict the future is simply to look at the, the pockets of undistributed future the future that's already happening around the world, because then you don't have to imagine the things that don't even exist yet. That's very difficult. There are futurists who try that and they usually get it very wrong. The easiest thing is to try to spot the trends that are already in the wild and then make a bet on whether they're about to cross over. Are they about to cross over into the mainstream? Are they about to cross over into wider adoption? Um, so for example, with remote work, I think we've crossed the chasm now that remote work is the new default. Every company that I've heard of who've started since the pandemic, they've all started remote first. And, and it's not even a question. Like that's what's so fascinating is once these things flip, right? It just becomes, of course, it becomes the new normal. The new normal is if you start a company tomorrow, you're going to start it remotely. At Fembeek, we are a team of 12 people. We are um, in different countries, you know, yes. like from US to Dominican Republic, Czech Republic, uh, India. Bangladesh, everywhere. We are everywhere. And that feels totally normal, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't feel like you're living in this weird parallel universe. Imagine presenting that reality to people 10, 15 years ago. They'd go like, that's a, you might as well have been describing how Martians live on the red planet, right? Like it would be so foreign to their reality. And like snap of a finger, plus minus. And now this is the new default. This is the new default. And I thought that's just such a fascinating shift when we have these big mental shifts about like, what is what is the present? Like the future is one thing, right? But it's this thing where suddenly the present changes. And like, this is now the thing that we're, we're living in and we take it totally for granted. Um, so I think if you look at some of these other uh, larger trends with virtual reality and, and with crypto and so forth, a lot of the future prediction is like, which of the things are going to get into the present, which of the things are going to make this switch like remote made where now that's the new default, right? Um, and it's very hard to like, when are these things going to happen? If you had asked me in 95, when is virtual reality going to make this, this shift? I'd be like, well, I don't know, by 98, or by, by 99. And then it took another 20 years. Um, I think uh, the example I keep coming back to is actually artificial intelligence. You look at some of the early... Um, pioneers in computing in the 50s 
and you read about what they think about artificial intelligence and they all go like, they barely just got these tubes to compute one plus one. And they go like, yeah, yeah, in five years, we'll have uh, artificial intelligence. They'll just uh, be able to tell mankind what to what to do, right? And like, we're still not there. And I think um, your example of Elon is a, is a good one. I, I've certainly also um, revised my perception of him, but one of the reasons that made me kind of um, net negative on him for a while was his um, prediction about AI and cars, right? Like he was like, we're going to have self-driving cars in like whatever, two years. Or he said like some point in 15, he was like, by 17, we're going to have a robot army of cars that drive around them their own. Well, we and do I went have, like, uh, sorry to interrupt, but, but we do have the technology. Part of the reason why we don't have it in the streets is because the streets are not ready. The traffic laws are not ready. Well, the streets not being ready is that's just reality not being ready, in my opinion. Yes. Is that like you don't get to redesign Paris. You don't get to redesign Copenhagen around what would work well for an AR car. Right. So I think that was part of the fallacy is that when you work in computers and you work with things that are hugely malleable and we're like, we could just rewrite it. We just, you don't get to rewrite cities. So you have to be able to come up with technology that's so good that it can work with the reality we already have. And what seemed more likely to me in 95, when I read the first proclamation from Elon about the army of robot cars was like, do you know what? I've tried the technology that we have right now and it's bad. It can't even do the basic things very well, right? I, I have a Tesla. And you see in the main thing, you see where it sees the other cars. And I remember seeing that for the first time and go like, yeah, I would not trust this computer system to drive me anywhere. Like, it, like the cars would be moving around and you'd like, oh, it got that one wrong and then it, it changed its, like, it just, just doesn't seem ready. Um, and even more to the point, even if I thought it was ready, I would think back on the virtual reality example where I'm like, I've just seen the law mover, man. I think this is about to be reality in two seconds, right? 20 years later and it's, barely reality. It's certainly not mainstream. Virtual reality has not gone mainstream yet. And here we are 25 years later. AI, general AI was thought to go mainstream five years after we discovered the computer in, in 55 or whatever, basically, right? Still not there. And then there are these other things where I'm sometimes shocked. You look at this uh, DALI um, new computer model that can create art out of natural sentences. And you just go like, holy that is the future in a way where I'm like shocked that that's possible. Or you look at um, um, face replacements or some of these other things with, with uh, computer learning where you just go like, this is the future and it's here in a way that's shocking. Um, so it's just so hard sometimes to, to know when are we going to jump the, the chasm on this. I don't think we're going to jump it on, on self-driving cars anytime soon. I mean, that's just a prediction, of course. But this was one of the things where like, as it, with anyone, Elon made like a ton of different predictions. Oh, we're going to fly rockets that can land themselves. And people went like, that doesn't sound like likely. Boom, he flies a rocket that lands itself. Okay, I'm going to sell a million Teslas, right? I remember when he made that programmation, I went like, um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. You've sold, what, 80,000? And then boom, he sells a million Teslas, right? Who is it that's right on all their prediction? Absolutely no one. But I'm very glad that he exists to make these ludicrous <laughs> predictions. And then like if his hit ratio is just 10% to 20%, that's great. And I think like when it comes to the self-driving army of taxi cars, we may very well be 20 years out. We may be virtual reality distance from it. We may be general AI distance from it, that we won't have self-driving cars for 50 years that can navigate the back streets of Paris. Yeah, it's so fascinating because the way that technology evolves is not in unison, right? Like there's like some pockets of it. Yes. That, like, for example, right now, my focus is starting to become more quantum computing because I think quantum computing is going to disrupt blockchain. And when I was looking at blockchain in 2017, 18, I was thinking how it was going to disrupt Amazon and Google, et cetera, which is now starting to happen. So essentially, that's what Ethereum is doing. Ethereum is, is disrupting those uh, incumbents. And now I'm already thinking about uh, quantum computing. And I think quantum computing is going to be here sooner than we think. But then quantum computing could potentially be here before AGI, or it could make a big leap towards us reaching AGI. So um, do you know Ray Kurzweil? Have you read The Singularity is Near? I haven't read it. I'm just generally familiar with. So yeah. Okay. So, so it's very interesting. That. So yes. I'm, 
yeah, like he's got these pretty precise predictions about the rate of technological growth. He's been like famously 86% correct. And I'm hoping to get him on the podcast because he's written a book called The Singularity is Near uh, like 10, 12 years ago. And now he's got another book coming out in 2023, which is called The Singularity is Nearer. And, uh, and, I, and I really want to talk to him about that. Basically, what's really fascinating is that these different aspects of technology, they don't seem to all grow in a parallel and some of them grow faster than others. Complex. You can't predict which is which, right? Like that's that's a really hard thing. And humans are so terrible at these kinds of jumps. They think we think in linear thinking, right? Like we think, oh, because we made this advantage, we're almost here. I, you can totally see all these cognitive biases where you like it would lead a smart person like Elon to believe that the army of robot taxis is just around the corner because like, oh, we solved this problem, this problem, this problem. And then suddenly we hit a really hard problem that isn't e- easily um, surpassed. And the other thing here too is that you mentioned Nietzsche, the paradigm that God is dead is one we're still struggling with. And I think when it comes to singularity and other futurist ideas and concepts, a lot of it is trying to fill that hole. A lot of it is trying to fill the hole of faith and um, sort of the, the second coming and so forth. And sometimes it's hard to discern like what is actually sort of faith-based religious thought just wrapped up in futuristic terms and what is the actually things that, that might happen. And sometimes I think we just don't even know until it arrives, but um, just at least knowing that as humans, sort of our basic programming is that we're very susceptible to magical, faith-based, whatever thinking, and perhaps that we even need it. Um, that we need something in our head, like we need to believe something that's bigger than ourselves and isn't right in front of us. And maybe that's the singularity, right? And maybe the singularity is is total fiction. Maybe it's not, right? I'm not even, I'm not making a value judgment on it. I'm just saying like, we have this, as Nietzsche would say, God-sized hole in our soul that we're trying to fill with, with all these things and and trying to navigate like when when something is is in that category. And then when something is actually real and just about to happen is is surprisingly difficult, which is also what makes it so fun, right? That we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. This is very interesting. So we have got an NFT collection um, coming out soon. And it's actually based on my love of Nietzsche and uh, philosophy of science and technology. And uh, I really like his concept of the Ubermensch, um, which is like, you know, this evolved human and when you read his books you know the sense that you get that he's predicting for that to happen in about a century or so from his time and and that is happening right now so actually uh ray kurzweil also has another book that's called the spiritual machines there's definitely something to do with i would say the religion of technology in some ways being developed you know and this whole concept of Uh, We have gotten rid of the idea of God, but we need to replace that. We need to fill that hole with something. And that something is now technology. So there's definitely something fascinating there. So our NFTs are essentially a representation of this whole, the Ubermensch concept. I call myself a transition architect. So somebody who is, you know, I'm a tech philosopher and a transition architect. So somebody who is trying to develop an architecture for how we constantly transition. Yuval Noah Harari has got this concept that we need to now live in a tent. In the past, we would build these houses, right? Like our identity was like a house. It had strong foundations. But now we need to live in tents because we need to be ready to pack it up all the time and move to the next thing, right? And for that, we need a new form of architecture. And that architecture needs to be really agile and something that's like very nimble and you can pack up and go. And one of the reasons why I like crypto is because it gives you that mobility. You know, you can take it anywhere with you and it gives you the tool to be able to transition from one thing to another. So maybe as a, as a last question, I want to ask you this. How do you feel about the idea that this life may be a simulation? And, you know, and now we are creating another simulation within this simulation. I think it, it connects directly to what we we're just saying about uh, the intersection between religion and technology, that it is that is uh, the perfect religious question because it's unknowable. 
So it is, it, it lives in the world of faith. And I think that that's um, just this fascinating border area where we are on the one hand, although dangerous at the same time, when, when we're not quite sure whether to treat a question as a matter of technology or, or science or of a matter of, of faith. Um, and I think you look at the history of, of religion when it, it really went off the rails was when it was so convinced that its deities and whatever were actually not just allegories, but real. And unless we persecuted the, the inquisition, like uh, God would be mad with us. So it, it's this tension area that I find fascinating. Um, and I think it's also just innately human that we wonder about the origin of things, right? Where did the stars come from? Where did the universe come from? What's outside the universe? I mean, I have three kids and you don't have to be that old before you start actually asking some of those deep questions we have no answers for, right? Like we talk about the, the Big Bang and they'd be like, but what was before? And you just go like, well, that's a good question. Or we talk about the, the limits of the universe and they'd be like, what's on the outside? So I think humans are just sort of born with the, the need to ask, ask these questions. That's part of the human condition. Um, and I thought like, you know what? It's just interesting to, to have these thought experiments, these religious faith-based discussions about, are we all living in a simula simulation? Can we know either way? Can we un plug. I think that's one of the reasons why The Matrix was such a defining movie for a lot of people, right? Like, they're like, yeah, here, here's the, a staging of that whole concept that like, maybe I am just a battery for a bunch of robots uh, hundreds of years from now, and they're just running the simulation on me. I think it's, again, where my trouble sometimes comes in is, is when people treat those kinds of questions as a little too literal, or as a little too pertinent to sort of the actions that they're taking, like it, it can lead to a sense of nihilism quite quickly. Well, nothing matters anyway, because we're just running in a simulation and ergo, it doesn't have to. I'm yeah, not it doesn't it have to, to, because even if, the, even if life is a simulation, even if we are in a simulation, what really matters is the experience that we are creating, that experience of happiness, you know, that experience of joy, of love. You know, it doesn't matter whether this is physical or a simulation. Yes and no. I think this is why I love The Matrix so much. There's this scene where um, the traitor is sitting with the robots and he's like, I know this steak isn't real, but it tastes so good. And then he goes, ignorance is bliss. Um, but he's the odd one out. He's the one who accepts that the matrix is just a simulation. None of this is real. He's eating ones and zeros. Um, and yet he wants to go back in versus it, it's sort of uh, opposition is the rest of the crew on the Nepalist, right? They all, once they learn the reality, once they learn that the simulation is not real, they reject it, right? They want out, they want to fight it. And I think that there's also something in that, that mm, a lot of people have, they can't live in a simulation. They're not content doing that. They can't accept it. Um, so they're either faced with the choice of it's better never to have known, as the trader's argument, I forget what his name is, but he's like, I wish I never knew, right? Like, oh, no, no, it goes even further. He knows now and he goes like, I don't want to remember anything. You put me back, maybe yeah, someone important, like a someone. mayor or something, <laughs> but I don't want to remember anything, right? That this... Uh, that it's hard to internalize ignorance is bliss, that it's hard to know that what you're living is fake, so to speak. And I think we have expressions of this all around the world, that people live in certain ideologies or regimes. Communism, I think, is a great example, right, of a form of simulation where a bunch of people are like, we know this isn't real. This isn't what it says on the tin. We're not all equal. We're not living in an egalitarian society. We're all pretending um, and we want out. We want to unplug. So, Anyway, I love these questions. I love the, the broadness of it. And I love to engage with them with sort of that curiosity of it um, because it's a way to reflect on our own actual lived experiences and, and what's actually important to us and what is the, the meaning of our existence. I think this is one of the things with philosophy, existentialism, um, man's search for meaning, all of these great works were, were like, you know what, once you've reached a certain level of steps on Maslow's pyramid of needs, you're into self-actualization. And like, that is an unsolved question on a mass market basis. Um, and, and, and the market has only been blown wide open when, when Nietzsche declared God to be dead. 
Absolutely. So do you have a, do you have a, a crypto wallet yet? Do you have like a MetaMask wallet? Because I would love to airdrop you our <laughs> NFTs because what, what I'm building is a community of people who are curious about, um, you know, science, technology and, and uh, how the future of humanity is changing. And then eventually, like the idea is that we will have some opportunities for people to go like stargazing with me or, you know, go to the CERN, you know, like I, I love to go you know, to CERN. And, and I'm like, those will be some of the things that we will give away as I build this community. So we have got the platform, which is mostly at the moment, mostly focused on Web3 education and teaching people everything to do with Web3, but on a larger scale so that the NFTs are a representation of the bigger picture where we are going with this and how we want to be ahead of technology or at the cutting edge of technology as we grow as humans going into this space. I yeah. don't have yet, which is sort of, I, I need to get on with it um, and tickle my curiosity with some yeah. practical experiments. So I'll definitely send you as soon as I get something set up. I'll send you awesome. a, a video that you can create one for yourself and for your kids and, and family. Uh, okay, so now your new business, you have got this new email system. And the idea of it is that you want to innovate in email because there's been no innovation in email space for a very long time. And you are trying to create an email system that you can only hear from people that you want. And then you went into head to head with uh, Apple. So tell me about that. Yeah, so when we launched the, hey, about a year and a half ago in 2020, the summer of 2020, we built two years and we've invested millions of dollars into building the system. And we go live, Apple approves our app um, on the Friday, I think it was, we were about to go live on Monday. And then on Tuesday, when we submit an update to the app, they go, actually, no, you can't have an app in our store unless you give us 30% of your revenues because they wanted us to use their in-app payment processing. And I just went ballistic. I'm like, there's no fucking way that I'm handing over 30% of our revenues to Apple just for the privilege of existing, just for the privilege of being able to have a piece of software on the most predominant uh, computing platform for most people in the US, which is the iPhone, the computer they carry in their pocket. That's not reasonable. It's not reasonable that we have one gatekeeper who controls whether you live or die as a new business. And if you want to live, you have to pay 30% of your, of your revenue. So much. It's crazy. It's totally bananas. And it's not just the 30%. It's that they dictate everything around your business, how you can, you don't even get to have customers. If you have your business on Apple, you don't have customers. Apple has customers. You're just a supplier. You never get a direct connection between you and the customer. We couldn't even refund someone who bought, hey, no, no, we have to say, you have to talk to Apple. They're the distributor, right? And I'm like, you know what? I've been in business for 20 years on the internet. We've always had direct peer-to-peer -peer relationships with our customers. If our customers wrote up us about getting a refund or maybe it was a little bit of a hard month, they needed a, an extension on their payment, we could do that for them. Once you live in Apple's world, you can't do any of that. And it's totally insufferable. So we went head to head in this epic fight for about two weeks for the right to exist. And first Apple was just like, we're just going to kick you out of the store. And we knew, and our customers were telling us, if that happens, your business is dead. Over 80% of the people we have paying for, hey, they have an iPhone. And if they can't get their email on their iPhone, they're not going to buy our product, right? So Apple has this incredible power to say which companies can live and die. Um, and yet we just went up and I'm like, I don't care. We're going to take this risk that they're going to kill our business because this is not right. And it helped kickstart um, this whole discussion about the app stores and what's reasonable and in part helped inspire uh, the Epic lawsuit and all this other attention that's been around the app stores. And we finally have some traction now. Um, you could say from a Web3 perspective, perhaps, unfortunately, that is a legal traction we have, that there's governments around the world, including in the EU, that just passed legislation essentially saying, you can't be a monopolist just um, threatening all these businesses and putting them out of business if they don't do as you say. What I would much rather have is the kind of distributed decentralized reality that Web3 promises to be, that we go back to the internet. The magic of the internet was you could start a business and no one could tell you no, right? I mean, you might be in violation of local laws and then there's a thing, but there was no individual business who could say, well, you don't deserve to exist. That's how software used to be on mobile phones, for example, right? And actually still is. I mean, Apple's whole conceit is like, oh, it's so much better than it used to be. And I go like, yeah, not really. 
There's still one gatekeeper. Maybe it used to be Verizon back in the early 2000s. Now it's just Apple and Google. And they get to decide whether you, you live and die. So we fought with them for two weeks and we just gave them so much more hell than they'd ever seen on this question that I think they were just a bit shell-shocked. And we got to live, we got to exist with this weird contorted uh, carve-out that they created for us. Um, but uh, that, that just really radicalized me on this notion of the centralized services and the dangers of handing over essentially your whole digital economy to just a handful of companies. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. So I got really engaged in the antitrust trust fight on the political and legislative level. And I've testified in front of Congress and a bunch of local senates and in the EU and competition authorities and so forth. Um, but it has also given me an absolute fire in my belly that we route around this damage, as the original saying goes. The internet routes around censorship as damage, right? The internet should route around monopolies as damage. And that's where Web3 and crypto is at least philosophically aligned with that idea that we can't have single institutions who get to control the flow of commerce, to control the flow of uh, expression, that the, the radicalness of the internet was that like, we all get to be there. You get to decide whether you want to go to a website or not, but you don't get to control whether that website exists or not. And that's the power we've granted Google and Apple. It's an absolute tragedy and a regression, which is one of the other things that sort of pops up. We talked about the history. You go like, do you know what? In the dark ages when, or the enlightenment, when they discovered the writings of Plato and Socrates and so on, they're going like, wow, I can't believe we regressed. We knew all these things like 2000 years ago. And then somehow we lost all this knowledge. We lost all this freedom and these ideas. And then we're only just now in what the 15th, 16th centuries rediscovering these ideas. I kind of feel like we're watching that in a compressed time. We knew what was right. The internet, the first version of the internet, DNS, email, HTTP, these were all open protocols. It uh, allowed for this amazing amount of freedom. And we got to enjoy that freedom for what, 10 years? Before the entire internet got colonized and balconized into just like five big companies, right? Like that is a monumental regression of fundamental freedoms to express yourself, to have commerce, to start businesses and so forth. And we're, we're now struggling with the fact that there's enough of us who remember the before times. I remember what the world was like in 2005, 2006, 2007, where you could just start your business. You didn't have to ask anyone for permission. You signed up for credit card processing. You were paying whatever, 2%. That was bad enough. I remember thinking 2%, that's horrendous. We have to pay someone 2% just to, to charge money. Little did I know, like a few years later, someone would show up and ask for 30%. And you just go like, that is a regression um, that we have to fight really hard in such a way we don't end up in a new dark ages where these five companies and, and their stooges will dominate the internet for the next hundred years. Have you seen that uh, Facebook has said that they are going to take 50% of people's NFT sales, or I think. So. Yes, yeah, yes. Right, from in the metaverse. I'm like, Freaking who wants ridiculous. to go there? Some of the challenge here that we have is we have to build alternatives. And again, this is where I'm really philosophically very aligned with the Web3 movement and so on, is that it's not enough to complain. You have to build. We have so, to build alternatives. I really want to do something. And I have an audience and probably around 80% of them are women, professional women who really want to get involved, who want to do something. Yes. We talk about the things that we need to do, but this we need is such a bad word in some ways. I mean, that's some of the motivation I draw from the crypto world is that here's a bunch of people who are actually doing Right? Like there's a bunch of people talking about like we need to do as I just did. We need to oppose these things in certain ways. And like the, the crypto world, the Web3 world, they're actually doing something, whether it's the right thing, whether it's enough, whether it's going to work. Those are different questions in part, um, but at least someone is doing something. And that I have tremendous respect for people who actually show up and start doing something rather than just sit on Twitter and complain. So. The hard part is that like, it, it's not apparent entirely what it is that we can do to crack it. I mean, part of the work is to even define what the solution looks like, right? Like in much of the Web3 and crypto world, like there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of work. There, there's fewer of the ideas that are, have reached fruition to such a point that they're actually now, today, compelling alternatives where we could say, well, we don't need Apple anymore. We don't need Google anymore. Um, it's quite hard to route around these things when these 
companies dominate such a deep stack of everything we do. These computers in our pockets, these phones, they have them locked down to such a degree. And this is, this is the main platform that people use to access computing. Like it was actually easier again in the old, old days. This is just 15 years ago when desktop computers were the ones we used to access and you could install your own software. You don't have to ask someone for permission to install a Windows program or a Mac program. You could just do it, right? Yet now we live in this prison of today where you have to say, Apple, please, please can I install a piece of software on my $1,000 phone? Like, wait a, wait a minute. I'm asking permission of Apple to install a piece of software on my $1,000 phone that I bought? That's just bananas. That is upside down. But um, I think the problem was or is that we kind of thought originally that they came bearing gifts. I remember thinking in like the, the late 2000s, you talk to anyone about email, for example, right? And everyone would go, oh, do you use Gmail? Gmail is just so great. They give it away for free. Isn't Google just this benevolent, lovely company that just wants the best for you? No, they're not, right? So now we're starting to realize that these gifts that they gave us, they were actually combs and mirrors. Right, like they weren't fundamental freedoms, and now we're like, eh, you know what? I'd rather have some fundamental freedoms than these combs and mirrors. Um, but now it's hard to undo the trade. We basically have like ten years to unspool, where we've handed over the digital economy, our digital life, to these companies, and now we're realizing, oh shit, that wasn't a good trade. I want it back, and they go like, uh, you can't have it. You got to fight us first, and now we're fighting trillion-dollar companies. Not hundred billion dollar companies, trillion dollar companies. It's not easy, but we got to start now. It's only going to get worse if we wait it's, another it's ten years, worse. right? Yeah. Like Apple is going to be worth ten trillion on their current trajectory, if not twenty trillion. And um, yeah, it's kind of like this thing: like, when is the best time to plant a tree? That was twenty years ago. When is the second best time? It's yeah. now. Yeah, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate you sharing these things. You know, I really love your passion. And, you know, I can see your blood boiling when you're talking about these things. I, I can, I can yes. really feel it. So we need people like you to get involved, to back these types of um, movements or, or to create, you know, spearhead it. I'm game and I've... Uh sort of invested my a lot of my own passion and interest in trying to do something like this. I have not given up on democracy. I've not given up on the way that society can rein in these things. I think we've done it before. You look at the history of antitrust and monopoly enforcement around the world, and it has happened. You think back of telecom that was completely dominated by single companies. You think back about the railroads, think back about uh, oil companies and all these monopolies. And I think there is something to happen in democracy, but I think democracy works better if it also has a little bit of uh, not competition, but like motivation that we're trying to solve some of these fundamental problems on a technical level that we don't need politicians to pass laws to protect ourselves. Uh, I think um, this is one, I mean, crypto in itself, but also encryption at large, right? is a technical solution to surveillance. Where you don't say like, oh, it'd be great if the government would say no one can spy on anyone. You know what would be even greater? If they couldn't, even if they wanted to. And that's what encryption gives us. So finding these kinds of solutions, I'm all here for that. Amazing. Thank you. I'm very grateful for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you and I really hope to have you back. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with David Heinemeier Hansen. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and check out his work. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify, or any other one of your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to give it a five-star rating and write a review. The full reviews are also available on my YouTube channel.